Today, we're talking college basketball. We'll take our first look at the NCAA men's basketball net rankings, use KenPalm.com and our favorite analytics to predict a huge game in the ACC on Saturday, as well as all the games in the SEC Big 12 Challenge, plus an interview with former college basketball coach Matt Doherty talking about his playing and coaching days, as well as his new book, Rebound from Pain to Passion. All of that coming your way on this episode of Crunch Time Plays. Welcome in to episode number two of Crunch Time Plays. I'm Benny Ganey. You can find me on Twitter at Shotgun726, and you can find Crunch Time Plays wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher. We are on your favorite podcast and outlet, so make sure you follow us there, and you will not miss a single episode of Crunch Time Plays. Also, if you love this show and you're following us on Apple Podcasts, please do us a favor and leave us a five-star review. We would greatly appreciate that. And we're going to try to do uh, some giveaways for people that leave five-star reviews, some free Crunch Time Play swag. We're going to pick one five-star review every week and read it out, and that person will get some free Crunch Time Play swag. So make sure you go on and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Man, I'm so excited to be with you guys. We got a great show lined up. We're going to break down the top 10 of the NCAA men's basketball net rankings. And for those of you that need a refresher on what the net rankings are, maybe you don't know what the net rankings are. Um, That is the number one tool that the NCAA selection committee uses when evaluating teams for the field of 68 in March. So if you are a bubble team in March, you want to have quadrant one wins in your basket. Now, quadrant one wins, they are wins that come against the top 30 in the net at home, the top 50 in the net at a neutral site, and the top 75 in the net on the road. So we're going to go ahead and break down the top 10. Number one is Baylor from the Big 12. They are 15 and 0. They are number two in the country in the AP poll. They have five quadrant one wins. Number two is Gonzaga from the West Coast Conference. They are number one in the country in the AP poll. They are 15 and 0. They also have five quadrant one wins. Number three is Michigan. They are from the Big Ten. They are 13 and 1 on the year. They have three quadrant one wins. Number four is Houston. They are 13 and 1. They are from the American Athletic Conference. They have three quadrant one wins. Number five is Iowa. From the Big Ten, they're 12-3 and on the year. They have two Quadrant One wins. Number six is Virginia from the ACC. Tony Bennett's squad, a couple years removed from the national championship team, and and they've got a stacked team again. They are 11-2. and They only have one Quadrant One win, but their offensive and defensive efficiency numbers are pretty sky high at the moment, so that is why they are number six in the net rankings. Number seven is Illinois. Brad Underwood's team from the Big Ten. They are 10 and 5 overall. They have one quadrant one win. 
Number eight is Villanova, Jay Wright squad from the Big East. They are 10 and 1. They have one quadrant one win. Number nine is Drake from the Missouri Valley Conference. They don't have any quadrant one wins, but they have four quadrant two wins, which is the next tier. And so, and they also have very high offensive and defensive efficiency numbers. So that's why they are number nine in the net. Number 10 is Alabama. How about Alabama from the SEC? Nate Oates has got that team playing some great ball. They are nine and oh in the SEC and no, we can confirm that Alabama is not just a football school, ladies and gentlemen, because Nate Oates has that team rolling, and we're going to get in to that when we pick the SEC Big 12 Challenge games here in just a little bit. They have a huge game on the road going up to Norman to play the Oklahoma Sooners. That's going to be probably the best game of the day in the SEC Big 12 challenge, in my opinion. They have five Quadrant 1 wins. They got some big ones, too. And they're playing some great ball. We're going to talk more about them, like I said, in the the SEC Big 12 challenge pick segment. So let's get into that SEC Big 12 challenge pick segment. Coming up at 12 o'clock on ESPN. It is Alabama going on the road to Norman to take on the Oklahoma Sooners. And what a game that is going to be. Probably the best game of the day. You know, later on, we got some Blue Bloods. We got Kansas and we got Kentucky playing games against different opponents. Kansas obviously going to Knoxville to take on Tennessee and Kentucky got a battle with Texas at home. The Blue Bloods just, they just aren't, I don't know what the deal is with them. I don't know if it's COVID related or, or, or I know what the deal is with Kentucky. They just have so many first year guys. They, Coach Cal, he looks like he's exhausted after after every game, and and we got more coming up about that in our interview with uh, Matt Doherty here in the next few minutes here on Crunch Time Plays. But yeah, that's going to be a huge game in Norman, Alabama, and Oklahoma. I think Alabama's going to go on the road and get it done. Uh, if you have not watched Alabama. Um, they are number nine in the Kimpom.com rankings, which goes off of offensive and defensive efficiency. Coach Oates, he believes in the analytics. They don't, if you watch Alabama, they don't shoot many mid-range two-point shots. They shoot shots around the basket and they shoot three-pointers because those are the two highest percentage shots in basketball. And that's what Nate Oates believes in. And he's got the talent to do that. They shot 43 threes last week against LSU and that huge SEC heavyweight battle. And they and they made 23 of them. And John Petty was eight for eight to, to start out the game from three. Man, they shoot a lot of threes. And I think they're going to go on the road and get it done against Oklahoma. But Lon Kruger, he's got a great squad. They're playing some outstanding basketball right now. And there's not too much difference in when you look at the team stats between the two 
been they're pretty evenly matched, but I just think Alabama is probably going to hit um, too many threes to for Oklahoma to keep up, and and I think the Tide come out of there with a W. The Tide four and zero on the road this season, by the way, and the Sooners are eight and one at home, so that's going to be an interesting battle in the SEC Big 12 Challenge. So we'll give Alabama the win there. We'll put one on the board for the SEC. Coming up also at 12 is Texas A&M at Kansas State. That's on ESPNU. And I think Texas A&M is going to get the win there. It's going to be a great game. Kansas State is is not very good this year for Bruce Weber and, and his squad and Buzz Williams and the Aggies come rolling in at, at the perfect time and and Miller and Flag and they're going to be too much for the Wildcats and so I think the Aggies will get it done there. The Aggies looking to snap a three game losing skid and so I think they do that on Saturday at 12 o'clock. Kansas State, by the way, has lost their last five games and so I think they're going to lose their six straight. So I'll take the Aggies there. That's two on the board for the SEC. Coming up at 2 o'clock, man, this is going to be a fun one. Number 10, Texas Tech at LSU at 2 o'clock on ESPN2. If you haven't watched Matt McClung from Texas A&M, man, you are missing out. And if you haven't watched LSU play offense – then you're missing out also. They score 83.7 points a game. And they beat Texas A&M their last time out. And Texas Tech has lost their last two, but they've lost to Baylor and West Virginia. Baylor, obviously, as we mentioned, they are the number two team in the country, and they are number one in the net rankings. And West Virginia is also really high in the net as well. But it's a great opportunity for Texas Tech to go on the road and get a Quadrant 1 win. And it's also a great opportunity for LSU to get a Quadrant 1 win at home for Will Wade to have a notch in his belt come March with another Quadrant 1 win. But I think the, the Red Raiders are going to come out with a W and snap their two-game losing streak. I think Matt McClung and and the way Texas Tech plays offense, Chris Beard, LSU plays no defense. I mean, they're giving up 73 points a game, and their defense just isn't very good. And Texas Tech only gives up 61 points a game, and they're going to neutralize that LSU offense. And Matt McClung and, and Santos Silva and Edwards, they're going to have a big game for the Red Raiders. So I'm going to go with Texas Tech in that one. So that takes us two for the SEC and one for the Big 12. The other one at 2 o'clock, Florida goes on the road to face West Virginia. Obviously, the, the, harf, the horrific situation with Keontae Johnson – at the beginning of the year when Florida was playing Florida State and he collapsed on the court and we're certainly thankful that, that he's doing better and it was a COVID situation uh, 
uh, some side effects from from COVID, and and we're just so thankful that Keontae Johnson is back on his feet and that he's doing pretty well. Florida on offense, they average 77 points a game. They give up 70. Another game where these teams are pretty evenly matched. West Virginia scores 75 points a game and gives up 69. And it's going to be a heck of a matchup between Mann and McBride. And uh, I just think that the Mountaineers will come out with a W there at home. They're 5-1 and one at home. They have won their last two. Florida's won their last three. They've beaten Tennessee, Georgia, and Vanderbilt, but they will not beat the Mountaineers on Saturday. So I'm going to go West Virginia there. That takes us two for the SEC and two for the Big 12. Here's another one. I think the SEC gets a win. TCU at number 12, Missouri. That's at 2 o'clock on ESPNU. Missouri. How about Missouri? Quanzo Martin has that team going. They are really, really good. They are 26 in the net. And they have an opportunity to, to snag a, a quadrant two win against a TCU at home on Saturday. And I think they get it done there. So I'm going to go with Missouri. And that takes us to three and two in favor of the SEC. But the Big 12, I think, gets another one back at four on ESPN as Bruce Pearl's Auburn squad travels to number two, Baylor to take on the Bears and Scott Drew. And, man, Baylor is just too much for Auburn in this game. But how about Auburn? How about Sharif Cooper? How good is he? Man, he is going to be an NBA lottery pick, probably a top five pick. If you listened to our last episode with Nathan King, you realize – just how good and how special Sharif Cooper can be. And if you've watched him play, man, he lights it up. And he is great on offense. He's a pretty good on-ball defender as well. And so that's going to provide him with some great traits at the NBA level. And I'm sure he'll be a a one-and-done. Auburn, of course, is implementing the one-year postseason ban. So hopefully that's all the the punishment they get from the NCAA for Bruce Pearl and just that Baylor and their leading scorer. Butler, he's just too good, and Baylor will get the win there. Baylor and Gonzaga, those two teams – I think they are they are shoe wins for the Final Four at Lucas Oil Stadium in Indianapolis. If you can go ahead and pencil those two teams in. They are the two best teams in the country. And barring some Cinderella run or something like that, as March Madness is known for, I fully expect Baylor and Gonzaga to be in Lucas Oil Stadium for the Final Four. So that takes us to three and three in a deadlock. And that brings us to Arkansas at Oklahoma State at four o'clock on ESPN2. Arkansas and Eric Musselman with a chance to pick up 
a really nice win on the road. And I think they do. I think they get it done. They are two and three away from home, but they are scoring 84 points a game. And their offense is just really good. And Moody, he is pretty special as well. Old Moses Moody. He is shooting 30% from beyond the arc. 41% from the field. He's averaging 18 points a game. And just think Arkansas may be a little bit too much for Oklahoma State. They're on the road. So I give that win to Arkansas. That takes us to four and three in favor of the SEC. Now to the other big game. It's on Rocky Top. It's number 15, Kansas, at number 18, Tennessee. That game's at 6 o'clock on ESPN. That is the primetime game. And, man, is it going to be a good one. Kansas and Bill Self come rolling in. Tennessee, they've got the the finalists for defense, National Defensive Player of the Year was just released, Shvi Pons. Man, he is so good. If you haven't gotten a chance to watch him play defense, if you haven't gotten a chance to watch Rick Barnes' teams play in general, Rick Barnes, he's just an outstanding basketball coach, and they've got one of the best players in the SEC in John Fulkerson. They've got a great point guard in Santiago Vescovi. And they're – I think they beat Kansas on Saturday at home on Rocky Top. Kansas, they just – something about those blue bloods. Like they're, I don't know if it's COVID. I, don't, I think they just are having trouble hitting their stride this year. That doesn't mean Kansas is not going to be a great team in March. I think they will. They always get it together. But that's going to be a fun one on Saturday night on Rocky Top. And I think Tennessee and Rick Barnes comes away with the W there. So that takes us to 5-3 and three for the SEC. And then there's another game at 6 o'clock on ESPN2. They'll give that win to the SEC as well. Iowa State at Mississippi State. DJ Stewart just too much for Iowa State. And and Ben Howland's team is going to get the W there, I think. Iowa State, they are 2-8 on the year. They are 0-3 on the road. They are really struggling. And they're only scoring 67 points a game. Whereas Mississippi State is scoring 70 points a game. And Iowa State has lost their last four, make it their next five. As Mississippi State will also be snapping a three-game losing streak with the wins. I think they do. I think they get the win there. So that takes us to six and three for the SEC which will obviously win the SEC Big 12 Challenge, even if Texas goes on the road to Rupp Arena and beats Kentucky at 8 o'clock on ESPN, and I think they do. Not sure about Shaka Smart's status for Saturday. Tested positive for COVID, so I'm not sure if he is going to be able to coach on 
Saturday night at Rep Arena by Kentucky. Just lost a game at Alabama by 11 on Tuesday night. And Texas just got beat by Oklahoma on Tuesday night. And so that's why that's why I think that Alabama and Oklahoma is going to be the best game of the SEC Big 12 Challenge. So there. So I've got Texas beating Kentucky. Just think that Texas is going to go on the road and get the W there. They're 2-0 away from home. And I don't really know what's going on with Kentucky. But Coach Cal, he just – he just looks exhausted after every game. And I think all the years of, of the one and dones and implementing new systems every year for new talent, I just think it's catching up to him. And, and especially in this COVID year, I think just everything going on is it's just too much for him. And they're really struggling. They're five and ten overall, three and three at home. And so they're just having a tough year, as are Duke and North Carolina. Um, we talked to Matt Doherty about that. You'll hear that here in just a few minutes. We talked to him about Duke and North Carolina being down. First time since the invention of the AP poll that neither Duke or North Carolina are ranked in the AP poll. And Matt said, you know, you'll hear his comments coming up in a little bit. He he just thinks it's those programs losing their way. And uh, I think they are. I think it's almost time for Roy Williams and Coach K to kind of hang up the towel. And I just think that you can stay at a place for too long and um, run run those, those programs into the ground a little bit. So personally, I'd rather them um, go ahead and hang it up uh, sooner rather than later and call it a career and ride off into the sunset because those guys are, are Hall of Famers and they've done so much for the game of basketball and, and we certainly appreciate them. But I think the the time may have come for, for both of those guys to kind of step away and just be ambassadors for the game and watch some new blood of coaches come in to Chapel Hill and Durham. Speaking of those teams, also in the ACC, um, one other game of note on Saturday is Virginia at Virginia Tech. Man, it's going to be a great game and a chance for both teams to get a quadrant one win. Tony Bennett, uh, the, man, Virginia, you just can't say enough about them with that pack line defense. They are so outstanding. And they picked up Sam Hauser. They've, got, they've just got a lot of weapons again. Take, took them a little bit to kind of hit their stride. I know it was a little bit of a struggle for them at the beginning of the year. Just my observation watching them play, they didn't, the pack line just wasn't connected yet. And the offense was a little bit stagnant from time to time. But they've seemed to find, they've seemed to have found their way. And man, are they playing some good basketball, as is Mike White's for, 
or excuse me, Mike Young, Virginia Tech squad. Man, they are playing some great basketball. And that game is at 6 o'clock on Saturday night on the ACC Network. And if you haven't gotten the chance to watch Virginia Tech's Kibe Aluma, he is something special. He is their leader of that team. You talk to Mike Young, he is the leader of that team. And Virginia is averaging, let's see, how many points are they averaging? They are averaging 73 points a game to Virginia Tech 72. They are very evenly matched. And then obviously that pack line defense, they don't give up many points. They are only giving up 59 points a game. Virginia has won seven straight games. And Virginia is 7-0 in the ACC, 11-2 overall. Virginia Tech is 12-3 overall, 6-2 in the ACC. I think Sam Hauser, he's going to be a difference maker in the game for Virginia, somebody they have not had in a while to transfer from Marquette. And obviously they still have Kihei Clark uh, running the point. And just think they're going to be too much for Mike Young and Virginia Tech. So I'll take the, the Cavaliers to go on the road and get that quadrant one win on Saturday night at Castle Coliseum in Blacksburg. So that'll wrap it up for the picks. And we have the SEC winning the SEC Big 12 Challenge. And we have Virginia knocking off Virginia Tech on Saturday night in Blacksburg. So now with that, it is time for my interview with Matt Doherty. He is the author of Rebound from Pain to Passion. And you do not want to miss my sit-down interview with him. He, he's just an incredible guy, and he is – man, he's just so great to talk to. And, and we had a great conversation. A lot of guys wrote rave reviews about his book. So many guys that that I love around the game of basketball, play-by-play voices and analysts. And I tell you what, I was I was blown away by the conversation that we had and the amount of insight and, and inspiration he gives on a daily basis. He's he's just an incredible man. And I'm so excited to be able to share my interview with him. And so with that. I will go ahead and play my sit-down interview with Matt Doherty right after this on Crunch Time Plays. We are so delighted to be joined today by former North Carolina men's basketball coach, 
former Notre Dame men's basketball coach, and he's been a lot of different places. He played on the 1982 championship team at North Carolina, where he was the best player on the team. I know. <laughs> he's done a lot of great things in his career, and he's the author of the new book, Rebound, From Pain to Passion. And we're just so delighted to have Matt Doherty on with us today. Coach, how are you? And uh, Happy New Year to you. You too. Thank you so much, uh, Bennett. I'm a little disappointed. I, I, you know, I'm the number two guest on your podcast. You know, I'm tired of coming in second place. I want it to be number one. So uh, hopefully we can help make your podcast uh, become the number one podcast in the state of South Carolina. Well, I tried to make up for that, Coach. You know, I put I, I said you were the best player on that. Yeah, that, yeah. That night, well, that night yeah, your, your nose is growing, Bennett. Your nose is growing. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, well, uh, the, the, you, you have a lot of formers in there. I was the former head coach at North Carolina, the former head coach at Notre Dame. I've got a lot of formers, you know, former player, former, you know, this, former that. So uh, hopefully I can keep a job uh, and not be a former anymore. Well, you're doing some incredible things now with your with with all the the coaching and and business leadership uh, experience that you've had, you're you're doing a lot of things now with your organization. Thank you very much. I'm excited. Um, you know, it's been a little bit of a challenge. Sometimes I think Bennett, you go through careers. You you have something that you're really passionate about, and uh, you are forced to turn away from it, and that's hard. It was uh, very scarring to be. Uh, turned away at North Carolina, uh, my alma mater. Uh, that was, what, 17 years ago, almost 18 years ago. And you try to find fulfillment. And I think I'm finally finding it, uh, having written this book. It's been very healing for me, very therapeutic. And uh, I, I like to teach. I like to coach. I just don't have a basketball team to teach and coach. And right now, what I do is try to teach leadership. And that's the whole part about rebound from pain to passion in the book is that I'm trying to rebound from losing my job, um, rebound from people criticizing me as a, uh, a leader. And I went on a leadership journey. And, and that's what we do as players and coaches, Bennett, is when you lose a game, you try to figure out what did you do wrong and how you can get better. And that's what I try to do. And I, I work now. I have a Darty coaching practice. I do leadership development, uh, sales training. Um, and I enjoy that because I feel like I have some experiences in my past as a salesman. Well, you, when you're recruiting your salesman and then as a leader, um, and, and all the things I learned along the way. So I appreciate the opportunity to share that through uh, your podcast. Coach, I just wanted to, I wanted to take you back a little bit to that, to that 2001 team. I know you were very, very successful at North Carolina that year, winning the, the ACC regular season championship. And you were voted 2001 AP national coach of the year. And then two short years later, you, you know, you were, you talked about you were forced to, to kind of leave your dream job. Just talk about what that feeling was like and, and what caused you to, to write this book. Um, yeah, well, the feeling wasn't good, uh, as you can imagine. Uh, 
to leave Notre Dame, which was a great job for me, uh, Matt Darty, Irish Catholic kid from New York, to be coaching at Notre Dame and helping them put the basketball program back on the map in a short period of time. You know, they, they offered me a, a nice contract to stay, and I felt the calling to go back and and work at North Carolina. Dean Smith and Michael Jordan recruited me to come back. Roy Williams turned the job down. I didn't want the job to go to somebody outside the program. And I knew that there, there would be my first year we'd be good. The second year we probably weren't going to be good. And the third year was going to be rebuilding. And to get through that cycle, uh, you know, there's things I could have done differently. And looking back, uh, I realized that uh, at the time, you know, there's anger and bitterness. And I think that as time evolved and I went on this leadership journey, uh, I saw a lot of aha moments where, you know, oh, okay, I could have done that differently. I could have done this differently. But it's like the first time you have a baby, <laughs> you know, you know, you can read all the books you want, but sometimes you have to experience it. And, um, you know, there, there's very, as you look at people that try to take over historic programs, it's tough because the expectations are high. And then I had Dean Smith and Bill Guthridge in the building and that's good and bad. The good thing is that I had them as resources uh, the bad thing is, you know, people could go to them and complain about maybe some of the changes I was making. And they, that enabled that to be uh, uh, that fire to be lit. So, uh, you know, it really I, I dealt with a lot of depression. Uh, I'm just now feel comfortable admitting that. And I think that, uh, again, writing this book is therapeutic. For me, uh, because anger turned inward leads to depression. So um, if I can help somebody avoid the landmines that I stepped on, uh, then this book will be a success. Well, you certainly do a, a great job of that in, in your book. I had the, the opportunity, opportunity to read a little bit of it from the from the excerpts that I that I got from from your your PR, Cindy, Cindy Byrne and the. Uh, she did a great job. She's the best, man. That lady, I, I nicknamed her Fire. Um, you know, I talk a great deal about enthusiasm and energy, and she brings it, man. She 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 brings, I call it the four E's, and I've stolen this from Jack Welch, who is the legendary CEO at GE, and he talks about four things that he wants in his employees. He wants them to bring energy to the workplace, can you, you know, he wants them to energize other people. He wants them to be able to ex ex execute and with an edge. And uh, Cindy does all, all those things. That's why I nicknamed her Fire. <laughs> Coach, just talk about, um, talk about that 1982 team for a second. I know, uh, obviously, there's a lot of great players on it. There was James Worthy, there was Michael Jordan, and, and there was you, and under Dean Smith and just talk about, just talk about that team. And did you ever, did you think that, that MJ would have the, the success of the NBA career that he had just based on what you saw on the court with him? Well, uh, first of all, we had 
the year before we had a great team. We went to the final four and lost in the national championship game. We lost some key players off of that. Al Wood, Mike Pepper were two senior starters. Uh, I stepped in to Mike Pepper's role. Michael Jordan stepped into Al Woods' role, and we really didn't miss a beat. Uh, however, we didn't have great depth. So if we had a foul trouble or injury, it could be a little trouble for us. And, and that occurred during the season. We lost to Wake Forest at home. Uh, Sam Perkins was sick. And so uh, we you have to have luck to win a championship. Um, but we had great players, obviously great talent and the history proves that out with Perkins worthy and Jordan in particular, Michael, at that point, he certainly did things in practice and in games that wowed you. Uh, but it was the next summer in the summertime, there was a pickup game and all the NBA players would come back, uh, Bennett. And we had Walter Davis come back, who was an all pro. His jerseys were in the his jersey was in the rafters. And Michael had grown probably a half inch by that point, put on some strength. And he just hit the game winning shot that, that won the national championship. So his confidence was high. And he was already a very confident player. And I remember sitting in the stands and he's playing against Walter Davis, who's all pro for the Phoenix Suns. And he's really giving it to Walter. And I'm saying to myself, if he's giving it to Walter Davis like this as a sophomore, rising sophomore in college, you know, he, he's, he's, he has a chance to be special at that point. It would have been disrespectful for me to say that he was going to be one of the best players ever to play the game. Like to, to project that at that point, I think would have been a little reckless uh, and disrespectful to guys like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Will Chamberlain, Bill Russell, uh, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird. Um, but lo and behold, Michaels became arguably the best player ever to play the game. Yeah, I know. Uh, he's every time I watch, you know, highlights of him, like even at North, even in North Carolina and with the Bulls, I'm I'm just so wowed by by his by his talent and and what what you know what impresses me more about him is just what kind of person and what kind of man he is and and that that um I mean that really just just speaks volumes to me and I know. You know, just for you, I mean, just looking at, at the career you've had and, and all the successes and, and all the all the failures that you had, was there one moment that you look back on and say, this is what I'm most proud of? Or is there a, another moment where you're kind of like, well, this didn't work out so well. You know, maybe I could do this better. Did, did the successes outshine the failures for you? Well, I think, uh, you know, hopefully I have a few more successes uh, <laughs> in the pipeline. You know, I don't know if there's moments. Um, you know, I think it's more the body of work, you know, to the year I had at Notre Dame was probably the most fulfilling. I really love those players. I love the fact that we made that impact. Uh, Notre Dame basketball. Um, I enjoyed that community. Um, you know, if, if you're looking at moments, it was the moments standing up 
in the press conference as the head coach at Notre Dame. It was the moment standing up as the head coach at North Carolina. Those were proud moments with my parents in the audience and my son and my daughter and my wife present. Those, although my daughter was in my wife's uh, belly uh, when I got named the head coach at Notre Dame. So, you know, that, that moment walking on the campus in Notre Dame with my parents, a funny story, um, Bennett, my mom, Irish Catholic from New York, um, we're walking on campus and we're looking at, it's a beautiful day. I think it was April 1st and we see the sun glistening off the dome and my mother pulls me close and I lean over and she kind of whispers in my ear, she says, you know, Matthew, if you couldn't be a Catholic priest, being the head coach at Notre Dame is a close second. <laughs> and that's just my mom. You got to love Mary Doherty. God bless her, bless her soul. Um, but those are the moments, you know, and, and really the beautiful thing about sports is that it brings communities together. And my community of my family, you know, in Notre Dame, I'm getting goosebumps now. We played in Madison Square Garden about four, four times, five times, four times. You know, I have my family sitting behind the bench and their, their, their brother, their sister, their, I mean, their brother, their, their son, their uncle coaching at Notre Dame in Madison Square Garden. Those are pretty cool moments. Uh, the moments of my dad and my brother being at Cameron Indoor Stadium on a picture that's over my right shoulder, right shoulder, sitting behind the bench. And the first time Carolina beat Duke at Duke in five years, that's a proud moment. So there are certainly great moments. And as, as time goes on, you have a tendency to remember the better moments uh, and, and forget the moments that, uh, that, that were hurt, hurtful. Yeah, you mentioned something in, in that in those comments that I that I kind of want to touch on. Just the you mentioned basketball and really sports in general being a being a community. How difficult is it for a coach to try to rally a team, but you're also trying to rally a fan base, a community. You're trying to get out into the community. How how difficult is that? I know that requires a, a great deal of work, and and I know if you're you're at a place for a long time you really have a chance to connect with those people. Just, just what does that mean to you? And, and how difficult. I, I, I enjoy that part of it, Bennett. Um, I remember when we got to Notre Dame, you know, uh, part of, part of their uh, fight song is wake up the echoes. And we talked about waking up the echoes and bringing back Notre Dame basketball. Digger Phelps had it rolling there in the seventies. And, uh, it wasn't hard. It was, I enjoyed that. I'm, I'm, I like to sell. I'm enthusiastic. Uh, when I believe in a product, I can sell it. And I remember, whew, I think the first three weeks of practice, or maybe the school year, I'd go from practice to three student uh, dorms on campus. They had 
men's and women's dorms. Um, everyone lived on campus. So we had somebody organize that I would go and spend 30 minutes at each and talk to the student body. So for, it seemed like three weeks in a row, I'd go from practice to spending basically an hour and a half to two hours going to these different residence halls and then get home at nine o'clock. And then that's the challenge when you take over a program or even when you've been coaching for a long time, the time demands are incredible. And how do you, you know, they say balance it, you know, work-life balance. How do you balance your family? There's no such thing as a balance. It's always the job takes up 75% of your time, 90% of your time. And then the key is including your family in the program. Some, you know, some like that, some don't. But then when you're home, trying to be focused on them for quality time, I wasn't good at that. But going back to your question, it was so much fun to go out to these residence halls and get to know the kids and tell them that you're going to impact Notre Dame basketball, that we need you that you will make a difference in how our team performs, how the referees call the game, and how recruits see Notre Dame basketball. And that was my message. And then one of our first big wins, well, our first game, we beat Ohio State at Ohio State. And so that set, you know, lit the fuse. And then I remember we beat St. John's at home, and I think they were top 25. And I don't think our students knew what to do. So I'm on the court and I'm waving them like storm the court, <laughs> like, you know, storm the court. And, and uh, you had some of the ushers trying to hold them back. And so I had to talk to the game administrators, like, no, let them come on the court because that's good for the enthusiasm. That's good for recruiting. So then we beat uh, UConn at home and they were in the top probably 10. And here come the students. You know, there was no hesitation. Everyone knew what to do. So we had to teach them how to celebrate because it had been a while. I think it's been, I might be wrong, 70, I think yesterday was the anniversary of Notre Dame beating UCLA to break their 88-game win streak. And you saw the fans run on the floor. And that was such an iconic moment. For me growing up, I was probably 10 or 12 years old. And, um, you know, I wanted to bring those days back to Notre Dame basketball. Yeah, that's, that, yeah, that's awesome. I know um, one of the, I hadn't really talked, I mean, you know, I hadn't talked to, you know, a lot of coaches, but a lot of them say that, that that's, that's the most fun for them. It's not, it's, Coaching the kids is really fun. Getting out and recruiting is really fun. But connecting with the whole organization as a whole, including the team, the the coaching staff, the fan base, like that that's what's most fun for them. Is that the most fun part for you? Uh, I, I, my, my, you know, my most fun uh, as a coach is winning on the road, <laughs> uh, 
shutting up the home crowd, celebrating in the locker room with my players and coaches, and then getting on the bus. And the bus ride is inevitably not long enough. That feeling is the best. And we did that my first game at Notre Dame. We beat Ohio State, Ohio State. They were ranked fifth in the country. And last second shot, and um, I'm getting goosebumps talking about it, jumping up and down in the locker room. And we get on the bus and all the voicemail messages, you know, of congratulations. It was on ESPN. My wife and kids were there. Um, that was magical. There's nothing like winning on the road. What what was your philosophy as far as as far as pregame speeches? I know a lot of a lot of coaches, you know, real rah rah type coaches that they kind of make their players, you know, want to run through a wall after after the pregame speech, especially in a big game like like you've been talking about. What what were those pregame speeches like for you? Were you were you a big like amped up like kind of guy, or were you more kind of mellow? It's a good question. It, it, it depends. Uh, what I was, I got, I think, pretty good at is getting a feel of the players. And at Notre Dame, there are a couple situations in particular. Usually I, I did what Coach Smith did. You know, you, you don't want to give them too much information. You can't coach them before the game. And if you have to rely on a pregame talk to win a game, you're either not very good or you didn't do a good job preparing the team. But you want them at the right emotional level. So I usually try to talk about three keys, you know, a couple, you know, talk offensive, defensive keys, and then three overall keys. And, you know, talk about the jump ball, same things that Roy Williams would talk about, Dean Smith talk about. Just don't want a long list because you don't want them losing their edge. But there were a couple of games where I felt they weren't, they were getting intimidated by the opponent. One was uh, at Georgetown. The trainer came up to me and said, hey, the players are scared. And I'm like, what are they scared of? They said, well, they've always been intimidated by Georgetown. So I tore up my pregame talk and I went in there and I got on them. I mean, I, I challenged their manhood that, you know, they put on their shoes just like you do. They put their shorts on like you do. And I want you, you know, I always say, what's the worst thing that's going to happen in a game? You get a bloody nose. You know, no one's going to, no one's going to pull out a gun. No one's going to hit you with brass knuckles. No one's going to pull a knife out. A fight breaks, breaks out. And usually it's people break it up before anything happens. So what's the worst thing that can happen? And I said, I want you to go out there and set such hard screens. I want to hear the air come out of their lungs. And we went out there and we probably had them down 15 in the first half and one going away. Those were some very rewarding experiences as a coach, Bennett. Yeah, I want to take you back, or I want to take you to your, uh, to kind of your North Carolina. Talk about big games, like kind of to take you back to your North Carolina days with the rivalry with Duke. I know um, Jay Billis wrote a great, um, he wrote a great review of of your book, which you have it on the cover. Uh, some of that, and just talk about him and, and what has he meant to you, and what's that kind of what's 
what's a coach's and a player's feeling going through a big game like that would do? Well, a couple things. I think, one, our programs are more similar than dissimilar. So there is a mutual respect and underlying respect. Uh, the true hatred comes from the fans. Um, but I think overall, except for probably a couple of occasions, the players respect each other. The coaches respect each other. We don't always like each other, um, but I think there is a mutual admiration because both programs have won at such a high level for a long time. And quite honestly, both programs recruit the same players. I visited Duke and North Carolina. Grant Hill visited Duke and North Carolina. Eric Montross visited both. I think Jerry Stackhouse visited both. You know, Bobby Hurley, I think, visited both. You can go down the line. Uh, Duke and Carolina generally recruited the same players. And um, so there's an underlying respect there. Uh, Jay Billis is, you know, one of a, a good friend of mine off, you know, uh, ever since I moved to Charlotte. Uh, Mike Jaminski, you know, uh, is, a, is a friend. Uh, Tommy Amaker at Harvard. Um, you know, Mike Bray was an assistant at Duke, didn't go to Duke, but when he took over for me at Notre Dame, he's been nothing but gracious to me. Uh, so Kevin White, the AD at Duke, is a friend. He worked, I worked for him at Notre Dame. So there's a lot of parallel, lot of, lot of, um, you know, a lot of cross-pollination there, if you will. Um, but when you prepare for those games now, it's, 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 it's real. That intensity is real. Um, when you walk out on that court and it's hot and the, the students are jumping up and down and you can see the floor shake, uh, that intensity is real. It's eight miles apart. I mean, the guys get their hair cut at the same barbershop. And, 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 you know, certain barbers cut the Duke sky, Duke, you know, players, the other, you know, a couple of barbers cut the hair of the Carolina players. Uh, they're not going to sit in the opposite chairs. I mean, it's real, but I think net net it's very respectful. Yeah. I always like um, hearing what coaches say about, about the rivalry games. It's, it's, it seems like, you know, the hatred is more, created by the fans and there there's a, a mutual respect kind of between between coaches. So just just wanted to get your opinion on that. Yeah. And then um just going to uh Roy Williams for a second. I know he's he's known you for a long time ever since you were you know a senior in high school and and you were on his staff at Kansas for a while. I just what has he meant to you in, in your career? I know he wrote a he wrote a great uh, quote about your book as well. So yes. what, kind of, what kind of a mentor and, uh, and friend has he been to you? Well, he's been like a big brother to me uh, ever since I played. Uh, he was the youngest assistant on the staff. And we had an awesome staff from Dean Smith, Bill Guthridge, Eddie Fogler, who was the head coach of South Carolina, uh, and uh, Roy Williams. And Roy Williams being the youngest assistant, spent more time around the players than the older assistants. Uh, so you, you felt like, I always felt like I'd go to coach Williams with something I was worried about. He would be the first guy I would go to. And, um, 
And then when I got into coaching, I went and worked his camps and I always dreamed about being on his bench at Kansas. And that worked out. I was there for seven years. We had some great teams, great players. I learned so much from coach Williams. And because of that, my first head coaching job was Notre Dame. And I was blessed. And, and, and I wouldn't have gotten that had I not played for Dean Smith and worked for Roy Williams. What other, um, what other coaches had your, now, what other coaches have you looked up to, you know, when you were coming up, whenever, you know, you were coming up through high school ball or, or when you were at North Carolina, just what other, what other coaches? Yeah. Well, um, Bennett, the, 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 I was blessed growing up on Long Island ever since I was in fourth grade, I played at uh, Gus Alfieri's all American camp, Reverend Vischer's basketball camp. Those are two great high school coaches. We had terrific high school coaches on Long Island. A lot of great players came out of Long Island. Uh, Dr. J, Mitch Kupchak, Billy Donovan. I can go on and on. There's some guys that played at South Carolina uh, that, that uh, you know, Kevin Joyce was from the New York City area. Um played at Malloy where Kenny Smith played. Um, Bobby Carver is a good friend of mine, lives here in Charlotte. He was from my hometown in the East Meadow. Uh, Brian Winters from Far Rockaway. I mean, Long Island into the city, some of the best basketball in, in the world. And we had great coaches that were really teaching you the fundamentals of basketball. And I was blessed to have great high school, co great coaches at my grammar school. And then I played for Bob McKillop, who's now the coach at Davidson College, my first two years in high school. And he really prepared me <clears throat> for playing at North Carolina, as did Dick Zeitler, who took over for uh, Coach McKillop at my high school. We ended up winning the state championship my senior year. So when I got to North Carolina, Quite honestly, it wasn't a huge adjustment for me in terms of the intensity of practice, the fundamentals that were expected, the attention to detail. I remember taking my visit to North Carolina and they had started practice. Uh, the other visits, uh, they, they did not start practice at that time. And I sat there courtside with a notepad taking notes on practice because of all the little things that they were doing, whether it be pivot, pivoting, boxing out, uh, bounce passes, uh, whatever it was, I was just in, enamored with the, the, the teaching that was taking place at that, at that practice. So, uh, you know, I love the game and I love to learn. And uh, I was blessed to have some of the best coaches uh, a young man could have. Yeah, I wanted to ask you one thing, and then we'll we'll get into um, a coaching philosophy kind of question that I have for you. But I know you, after North Carolina, you spent some time with the Pacers. I wanted wanted to ask you about what what do you think the biggest difference between the college game and the the NBA game is now? Oh gosh, I mean it's talent. I mean first and foremost, it's talent, and, and you know they're bigger, stronger, quicker. Uh, you know, better. They're just, you know, and, and, you know, a guy like Zion Williamson from your home state spends 
six months in college and, you know, then he has a chance to be a NBA uh, star. Uh, the best of the best. Uh, and I think we take it for granted until you get to see an NBA game up close and realize how athletic and skilled these guys are. Do you think, do you think there should be a change in, in the one and done rule? I know there's been a lot of, I know there's been a lot of contention about that. Does it get, I would like it. I would like it because I don't think it's, it's good for, I don't think it's good for the college game um, because, you know, it really ruins the integrity, I think, of what you are in school for. To get to be a student athlete, it makes that somewhat of a joke. When a kid goes and takes a couple easy classes in the fall, and then spring semester, you don't have to go to class because he's not going to care about the next semester. And right when the season's over, you know, he's going to, I mean, it's kind of funny, like the game's over the next day and now he's going pro. Like there was no decision. It was already decided. And I just think it makes a farce of the college experience. When do you think kids start developing relationships with these, with the big, you know, athletic brands that they, that they wear and the, the NBA players sign these really lucrative shoe deals and they sign these really lucrative clothing deals and different things like that. Do you, do you think that's something that happens like in high school when they start getting approached by that? And do you, do you think that affects like their college decision at all? Yeah, I, th I do. I think that uh, those relationships start at an early age for the best players. You know, that, that's the thing about basketball. You can see a kid as a ninth grader and say, OK, I think he's got a chance to be, you know, uh, an All-American. So they'll target that player. Um, and then there's always a late bloomer, you know, an Anthony Davis who grew in high school and ended up coming on just before his senior year in, in, in high school. So yeah, those, those, those sneaker companies, uh, the agents, they're out there. Watch. And that's the tough thing is college coaches aren't allowed out there, but the agents and the sneaker companies are. So they're able to spend more time with the, these players and their families and take them on these trips. I mean, some of these trips that these sneaker companies would take these families on were, uh, an extravagant paid vacation and they're getting to know them. So they can maybe steer them to a school. And then once they're ready to commit to playing in the NBA, then they hope to land them uh, as a ambassador for their shoe company. Yeah. I wanted to ask you this. And I kind of, you know, I kind of thought the same thing. I mean, with the college coaches not being able to, to reach out to these kids, you know, during certain times of the year. And, and I know that pretty much the agents and the shoe companies can, can, you know, reach out to them pretty much anytime. There's not really any restrictions on that that I know of, but do you think a guy like just use Zion, for example, since you brought him up earlier, do you think a guy, you know, kind of going back to the one and done thing for a second, what does a guy at, at night at 19 years old, you know, does he, what what kind of deal is it with him to, you know, be kind of having millions of dollars at that point, you know, at 19 years old? Do you, you think he, you know, hires a kind of a 
partners with an investment firm, you know, to kind of like what what do you think the guys like that, the the top players, how do you, how do you think they go about managing their money at such a young age? Well, it's it's you know, it's they've got to surround themselves with good people, you know, and and it's just like anybody else. I mean, just think about um, these actors and singers that hit stardom at uh, young ages, or, or Tiger Woods. Um, you know, there there's a lot of people. It's just not basketball players that uh, hit stardom at young ages. It probably happens more in Hollywood than anything. So, you know, that's where you have to um, talk to people that went before you. You know, I think LeBron did that. Kobe did that with Michael Jordan. You know, okay, you came before me. Give me some advice. I think everybody needs a mentor and that that has been before them. And that's what this book's all about. Rebound is being a mentor for people that are going through uh, the leadership um, road on the leadership highway. And I'm trying to keep them from hitting some potholes. So I think it's all about you know, learning and growing. And and so, you know, a guy like Kobe, uh, you know, had a dad who played in the NBA. That was helpful. Uh, LeBron uh, did not, but he had some guidance. And, and the thing that I think LeBron doesn't get enough credit for is the smart decisions he has made. Without a dad in his life, he has made... We have never heard of LeBron doing something that embarrassed him or any of his brands off the court. And I find that, uh, you know, really incredible and his maturity and smarts and surrounding himself, you know, in a risky deal, he surrounded himself with his buddies. You know, a lot of people wouldn't surround themselves with their buddies. They'd say, no, no, but he's got smart friends. And they created a path that, you know, he'll make probably more money off the court than he did on. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about, you mentioned LeBron. I know um, a lot of people have talked about, you know, allowing players to go, you know, to the NBA after high school or if they, if they choose to go to college and need to stay for, for three years. Just kind of where do you stand on that? Do you think that we should go back to the the – NBA players being able to go to the league after high school? I do. I think that, uh, you know, we're not in control of that. That's the NBA. I think it should be like the baseball model. And, and you know, if you're good enough, go, go to, go to the pros. And if you're not spend three years in college and, um, I think that's good for everybody. Uh, you know, there are players that are certainly good enough. You know, I mean, from Kobe to Kevin Garnett to LeBron, um, Moses Malone dating back in the 70s. And there will be players going forward, you know, whether it be a Zion, you know, I mean, what if Zion, when he blew out his shoe, really blew out his knee? Um, excuse me. Um, and so... And I think coaches would rather it be that way because they'd rather coach kids for three years and have some continuity instead of trying to every year have a free agent class and fill it with recruits or transfers. That's not fun. 
That is not fun. Yeah, you you mentioned that. I know. I was kind of thinking about about this earlier. Um, whenever I knew we were bringing you on today, just thinking about the last couple of you know just national championship teams in college basketball, just Villanova and Virginia. They're they're big into. They got a lot of juniors and seniors on their team. Guys that you know, Tony Bennett and Jay Wright have been able to mold, mold and shape for for three or four years. How how big of a deal do you think that is from a, a team continuity perspective? Just not having a lot of one and dones on that team. Just do you think that contributes to being able to go all the way to the yes, one hundred percent? Because what you're doing is you're having good, mature, experienced. Juniors and seniors going against immature, inexperienced freshmen. There's always exceptions. The one year Kentucky, you know, had Anthony Davis and and Michael Kidd Gilchrist, and, and they had a unique team. But overall, you look at the teams that won the championship, Carolina's championship, they didn't have any lottery picks. You know, they had Joel Berry, then they had Marcus Page. Um, they had Bryce Johnson, um, Kennedy Meeks, you know, weren't great NBA players. Uh, you know, those guys have not made their mark as NBA players. And you look at the guys who have, um, but yet they, they, they were a team. They were experienced. They were mature. They were smart. Uh, they had, they had habits developed that led to winning basketball. And when you're trying to coach, and I've, I've coached three freshmen and two sophomores before, that's hard. It's like you're coaching every possession unless, unless they're smart players. And fortunately, my last year at North Carolina, we had smart players. But, you know, it's tough when you're trying to coach every pass and every cut. And I see that with Coach Cal at Kentucky. And that's, that's fatiguing. Yeah, I know you. I don't, I don't know if you know if a lot of people notice it, but you can just kind of tell, especially this year. I mean, I don't know if it's you know all the COVID stuff and and all that, but he, Coach Cal, he he just looks you know defeated like after a lot of games, and I, I think that's just because he's got you know so many freshmen and and different things like that, and he he does a great job. He turns them over every year, and they and they compete. But uh, you think that you think that provides more of a wear and tear on coaches? A hundred percent. Who sleeps better at night, Jay Wright or John Calipari? You know, well, I'll tell you this. Most coaches don't sleep well at night. But when you kind of know what you can expect in a practice, in a game, in the next year, you you're 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 much more at peace than oh gosh I'm gonna lose five guys I gotta I gotta bring in a new crew what are they like how will they react to the pressure um, that's hard it's hard to do do you think um, this year I know I know Duke and, and North Carolina aren't aren't ranked in the AP poll for the first time do you think that has do you think the the lack of blue blood kind of kind of dominance this year is more of a, a COVID deal, not being able to get get out on the court a lot, and or do you think that they're they're just kind of hitting some bumps in the road with their programs? 
Well, I think everyone's dealing with COVID. So, you know, everyone's got to deal with the same thing. You know, some get hit with it more than others. Uh, but I think it's both programs have, you know, three, Kentucky, Carolina, Duke have all just hit, you know, like you just said, bumps in the road. Yep. I wanted to ask you about the question about coaching philosophy. I know analytics is is a big term now. You hear a lot of coaches using it. And I was watching, you know, Alabama and LSU last night. I know Nate Oates is pretty big into the analytics. All they really shoot is kind of high percentage shots around the basket and, and threes. They shot 43 of them last night, <laughs> went 23 of 43 from, from downtown. But just, just kind of where do you stand on the whole, the whole analytics debate in basketball? Or do you think there's a time in a game where kind of the analytics go out the window and you kind of have to rely on a gut feeling within a game? Well, I think that uh, analytics is here to stay, and they've been here. Uh, they just call them stats. I mean, Coach Smith in 1980 was doing points per possession at halftime and, and after games. He would tell us what the points per, per possession were at halftime. And the next day, that became in vogue five, six years ago, but he was doing that in the twenties and he understood the value of the three point shot probably as quickly as anybody, because he changed his style of play and encouraged the three point shot when it came into the college basketball. So, uh, and he always understood the value of foul getting fouled. He always understood the value of an offensive rebound because it gave you an extra possession. So from my vantage point, that's not really changed. I think you could go to the extreme. I still think there's a place for the pull-up game, especially at the end of a game, because you can take away a layup and you can take away a three-point shot. But when somebody gets the ball, like Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant, and can drive it to the elbow and pull up, there's nobody stopping that shot. So there is value in that kind of basketball. And I think the other thing is the question would be if Shaquille O'Neal were at LSU this year, would he be the number one pick? Yeah, he would. And don't you think coaches would then change their offense a little bit and get in the ball in a post? You know, I mean, so it's also a function of ability. Yeah, I've kind of, I've kind of always thought that too. You, I, you know, a lot of teams they can just run up and down and and shoot threes and 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 all that just because that's just kind of the personnel that they have. But but the the coaches who are able to 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 modify their, you know, system based on their personnel. That that's the people that I have the most respect for. I think they they can do they do the greatest job as far as as far as coaches being able to adapt to the personnel that they have. Yep, I agree. Well Bennett, I appreciate your time. Um and I wish you luck with the podcast. And uh, I, I, I'm sure you'll have some success and hopefully get more coaches on as, as you grow this uh, 
uh, this this newfound talent of yours. Well, thank you so much, Coach, and and really looking forward to to reading your new book. There's a lot of men that that I have a lot of respect for that um that wrote rave reviews about it. I know, you know, I love Jim Nance. He's my favorite. Yep. I play announcer. He he wrote a great review of your book, and and I look very much forward to to reading it and uh, seeing what else your career has in store for you. Thank you so much, Bennett. Thank you very much. Good luck. You're welcome. Thank you, Coach. That's Matt Doherty. He's the author of the new book, Rebound from Pain to Passion. And we look forward to have him down the road again with talking about his successes of his new book. Thank you so much, Coach. And have Thank you, Bennett. Have a good one. You too. Good luck. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Man, I'll tell you what, that interview with Coach Doherty just got me all fired up and I hope it did the same for you and hope you enjoyed it very much. And if you were inspired to purchase a copy of Rebound from Pain to Passion during that interview, it is available now on Amazon and Barnes and Noble for pre-order. The official release date of the book is March the 2nd of this year, 2021. However, if you are an ebook fan, which I know I am, I don't read paperback books at all anymore. I find that it's much easier, you know, just to read on my phone or my laptop. The ebook version of Rebound is available now on Amazon. And so you can go ahead and purchase a copy of the ebook and go ahead and start reading that. And if you're uh, a fast reader, which I am not, I'm not a fast reader, but if you are, then you could be already done with the book by the time March 2nd rolls around. And I know Coach Darty would have really appreciate the support. And so if you are feel so inclined, I want to ask that you purchase a copy of Rebound from Pain to Passion. And we just want to thank Coach Darty again for his time and being a new friend of the Crunch Time Plays podcast. Well, that'll wrap it up for this episode. I hope you really enjoyed it. It was a lot of great conversation. Uh, if you have some ideas or suggestions, once again, as to how you'd like to make Crunch Time Plays better, you can email me at Bennett at CrunchTimePlays.com. That's B-E-N-N-E-T-T at CrunchTimePlays.com. Or you can message me on Twitter at Shotgun726. So that'll wrap it up for this episode of Crunch Time Plays. God bless everybody, and we'll see you later. This is Crunch Time Place.